You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Good evening. It's good to be with you again. It's usually a year or so between times that I speak, so sorry, it's happened pretty quickly this time. So I was, I was asked to, to talk a bit about the relationship of the sacramental life and the charismatic life and what it means to be a people of the table and a people of the altar. So I, I want to start in Matthew 23. This what passage we're about to read comes in a diatribe, a prophetic diatribe Jesus is making against the scribes and the Pharisees. We sometimes talk as if the Jesus of the Gospels is meek and mild, always gentle, and he usually is with children and prostitutes. But if you're not a child or a prostitute, he often is anything but mild or meek. And you get that here. You get this fierce attack against the the scribes and the Pharisees. He calls them blind guides. He calls them fools. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind fools. And then he, he... He draws in on this point, what makes them so dangerous and foolish. So Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Now, I I want you to attend to that last phrase. You ought to have done these things without not doing those things. I think that one of the ways in which you can see the work of the enemy and the work of, of human nature kind of corrupting or frustrating the work of God in the church is that our churches fail to do the weightier matters and not to leave the other work undone too. We tend to be, and this is true whether we're talking about Catholic or Protestant, we're talking about Baptist or Pentecostal, whether we're talking about black churches or white churches, whether you're talking about churches here in the States or churches globally, we tend to be churches that live in either or realities instead of both and realities. And I think one of the ways that Jesus calls us to live is he calls us to live where we do the weightier things, but we don't leave the other things undone. Jesus is saying to them, you tithe down to the plants in your house. You don't don't only tithe your gross income. You tithe the plants in your house, but you fail to do right by your neighbor. You fail to care for the person that you see on the street who's in need. You fail to do what you can to bring about justice mercifully in the world. You ought to do the more important things and not leave the other things undone. 
So I, I want to frame what I'm going to say tonight by saying we need, we need to learn to be people of both and. People who, who don't focus only on what seem to us to be the more important things, but on all of the things that God has called us to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was important theologian during the run-up to the Holocaust, he was killed just a few days before Hitler committed suicide. He was a part of an assassination attempt, in fact, to, to take Hitler's life. Bonhoeffer was a significant theological voice. And one of the things that Bonhoeffer said that he saw in Germany amongst Christians there and here in the United States when he was here is he saw Christianities that focused either on the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. And he, he said he encountered that both here and there. That there were some Christianities, he said, that focused on the death of Jesus, and they, they were Christianities that were calling Christians to deny themselves, to own their sinfulness, to challenge this, the way that things were in the world. These were Christianities that were dark and heavy, that were concerned about bearing their burdens, were, were more comfortable in the season of Lent than any other time. Because they, they knew how to confess their sins. They knew how to fall on their faces before the Lord. They knew how to, to say, like we saw in the text this morning, Jesus, depart from me, I'm not worthy. They, they understood that religious impulse. But they had no sense of resurrection. Right? You notice in the text we, we just heard read to us that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins and we are of all people most to be pitied. So a Christianity that's only about the cross of Christ is a false Christianity. Because we aren't just people who believe that Christ died for us. Yes, we believe Christ died for us, but that's not the whole story. But Bonhoeffer said, just as sure as you see Christianities that are fascinated or fixated on the, on the death of Jesus, you have Christianities that are fascinated or fixated on the resurrection. And these are Christianities that are all about joy and happiness and singing and dancing and rejoicing in the blessing of God. And he says, these kinds of Christianities have no sense of responsibility to the world at all and no sense of their own sinfulness. They have no sense that the heart is, dece is deceitful and desperately wicked. So if you've got one kind of Christianity that's so aware of the deceitfulness of the heart that it's always repenting and never rejoicing, you have another kind of Christianity that's completely naive and unaware of the way that the heart is deceitful, and so it's always praising and never repenting. So it's, it's as if in this one kind of Christianity, it's always Lent and never Easter. And in this kind of Christianity, it's always Easter and never Lent. It's, it's always a time for joy and never a time for sorrow. Or it's always a time for sorrow and never a time for joy. But I think the word of Jesus would be, you ought to do these things and not leave these other things undone. You ought to weep with those who weep. And at the same time, rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't want to be a church known for rejoicing or a church known for weeping. We want to be a church known for rejoicing and weeping always. And knowing how to live in that kind of rhythm, in that, in that kind of pattern of life. I, I've shared this story here before, but I'm going to share it again because it, it was such an important moment for me. I was speaking at a church in Dallas, and when I'd finished the service, this, this woman came up to me afterwards, and she said, I, th I, think, I think I've just experienced what you were talking about today. She said, I have a, a dear friend who is in the hospital now because she's about to have a child. She's 
in her late 40s, and she's about to have a child. And in that same hospital, her oldest child is dying of cancer. And she said, just, just the other day I was there in the room with her. She was at the bedside of her oldest, I mean, yeah, her oldest son who was dying. And she was holding him up against her belly. And he, could, he said he could feel his little brother kicking in her womb. And she said, I think what you're saying is that's the Christian life. Yes, that's what I'm saying. We, we don't want to be people who are only about the kicking baby, who neglect the fact that there's a child dying in the bed. But we're also not only the people who are there with the dying child in the bed. There is a kicking baby. There is a life about to be born. And so, again, to come back to the words of Jesus, do these things and don't leave the other things undone. Right? So this, this seems to me to be absolutely crucial. Jesus models this for us in his teaching over and over again. Let me give you just a couple of examples. There, there's a passage where Jesus says to the crowds, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So that I could set members of households against one another. Fathers against daughters and sons and brothers against sisters. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And the same Jesus said, I didn't come to bring a sword, but peace. Now, how can both of those things be true? Which is it, Jesus? Did you come to bring peace, or did you come to bring the sword? Yes, he did. Right? He, he comes to bring peace by his sword. His sword is the way in which he makes peace. Is he a God of mercy or a God of justice? Yes, He's a God whose mercy brings about justice and whose justice is merciful. And what we have to avoid at all costs, and we're constantly tempted to it, what we have to avoid at all costs is becoming a people who fixate on either the mercy or the justice of God, who fixate on either the sword or the peace, who become known as a community that does this instead of that. that at that point, we're no longer a faithful community. We can't be a community that specializes in some aspect of the ministry of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We're, we, don't, we don't have a specialty. We, we do the full work of God. That, that's what it means to be the body of Christ. Here's another example. There's a place where the disciples come back to Jesus and they say, we saw these people and they were casting out devils in your name. And we stopped them because we didn't know who those people were. They're not disciples of yours. And Jesus says, don't stop them. If they're not against us, they're for us. If they're not against us, they're for us. So he seems to be saying, if they're not actively opposing us, then they're on our side. If demons are being cast out, good. Right? Whether they know me or not, good. As Paul will say later, if the gospel is preached, even for poor reasons, even for, for vanity the gospel is preached, and I rejoice, right? If they're not against us, they're for us. And then the same Jesus in another place says, if they're not for us, they're against us. Well, Jesus, which is it, right? Are you, are you saying that everyone who's not actively against us is for us, or are you saying everyone who's not actively for us is against us? And again, the answer is yes, right? There's something about the way 
the wisdom of Jesus works in the world, that it will, it will force you to hold together things that seem impossible to hold together. It'll force you to hold the dying son up against the belly where the baby brother is kicking. And it won't let you have one or the other. It'll force you to care about justice and mercy and faith and tithing. He, he won't let you choose what seems important to you and neglect everything else. Now, now that's the framework in which I want to talk about the, 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 a couple of different movements. First of all, the movement of coming in and the movement of going out. So some churches, I think, are from the outside in communities, meaning that all of their energy is focused on the work of getting people from out the outside together and come into the presence of God and celebrate together. So they're very much about the work of worship. They're very much about the work of praying together and preaching and praying for one another and singing together. And so it's in a sense in which the whole week builds up to Sunday and everything is about that two-hour window of time that they share together on Sunday. And everything they're doing throughout the week is about that moment. In some churches, the church that my parents raised me in, we had church four times every week. We had Saturday night, Sunday night, Sunday morning, and Wednesday night. And once a month, we had Friday night. And then twice every year, we had revivals that ran at least two weeks each. We were very much a church about leave the world behind you, come from the outside, and come in, and let's be the people of God together. And that is part of what it means to be the people of God. Part of what it means to be the people of God is to be people who gather together. I mean, we all know the passage, Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, right? That part of what we're called to do is to gather together on the first day of the week and to proclaim the resurrection. We're, we're called to be here to celebrate what God has done, who God is, and what God is going to do. That's some of what we are to do. There are other churches that are very much inside-out churches. And for them, the whole point of that two-hour window of time on Sunday morning is to energize people to go out and live the gospel out there. So for them, that Sunday morning service is really just preparing people to live Monday through Saturday. And the weight of the Christian life is about what you do Monday to Saturday. It's about what you do out there in the name of Jesus, not what you do in here. But of course, we shouldn't choose between them. We don't want to be an outside-in church or an inside-out church. We want to be a church that's constantly of the rhythm of coming from the outside-in so that we can be reawakened re-energized, re-empowered, and carried back out to live the gospel in the world, and then make the same return again. We're, we want to be a church that breathes in and breathes out. I mean, how, how healthy can you be for how long if you only breathe out or breathe in? Right? That's not who we're called to be. We're an inhaling, exhaling creature. And the church is meant to be the same way. Do, do we spend all of our week preparing for Sunday? Yes. Do we spend all of Sunday preparing for the rest of the week? Yes. And, and if we're not going to be the faithful body of Christ. We're not going to be the people of God. We're not, we're not going to be who we're called to be if we choose one or the other. We can't be a church that's concerned only about feeding the hungry or clothing the naked or caring for the poor if we're not a church that worships. But you're not 
a church that worships if you don't care about the poor or clothing those who need clothes and feeding those who need food. I mean, Scripture is abundantly clear here that if you want only to worship, read Isaiah 58. God says, I'm sick of your feasts. Stop fasting. Stop praying. I don't want to hear any more from you. Take care of the people around you. I mean, in Isaiah 58, he expressly says, you're fasting so, because you think I will listen to you, but then you mistreat your workers through the week. God's like, I, I, I will have no part in that. But he's not calling us only to do right by our workers. He is calling us to do that. And we're not his people if we don't do that. But we're also not his people if we don't gather together and proclaim the resurrection of Christ from the dead. If we don't get the gospel story told. So one of the things we have to resist is becoming a church that's either an outside-in or an inside-out church. And there, there, you can see this conflict playing out denominationally, and you can see this in more conservative churches tend to be one way, and more progressive churches tend to be another way, and we have to resist that at all costs. We're, we're, we cannot buy into that kind of binary either-or thinking. It has to be both, both and. We come in to worship, and we are carried out, right? We breathe in, we breathe out. We also have to, we have to hold together another pair of movements, and that is the movement of proclaiming the gospel, the witness to who God is and what God has done, and the transformation that happens and the formation that happens as we gather together to do that work. Now, some churches... And this tends to be, this is a little bit of oversimplification, but it tends to be the high church, liturgical, older traditions. The primary purpose of their service is to get the gospel proclaimed. It's not for people to come in and feel the touch of the Lord personally or to be moved by the Spirit. It's not a time for prophecy or laying on of hands or healing Generally, it, this, again, a little oversimplification, but generally you'll, you'll find churches where every song they sing, it's about who God is, songs to the Trinity, songs about the nature of God, that God is eternal, that God is perfect, that God is wise, that God is good. Their, their sermons, usually from the gospel text in the, in the lectionary, are about Jesus and what Jesus did. Right? And, and the focus of these churches is all about getting the gospel proclaimed. Who is God? What has he done? What is he going to do? And then you have other churches, and these tend to be lower churches, churches that are more casual, less liturgical, newer churches, that the focus is all about the individual being touched, having an experience in the worship service. So in these churches, you come to church to get what you need from God. Right? You show up on Sunday morning because God might have a word for you. And that might come while you're singing, that might come while you're praying, that might come while someone's preaching, not me, but someone is preaching. And in these churches, the, the entire reason you have church is to be touched by God. So to go back to the churches I was raised in, we would say this, we knew we had a good service when there was no preaching. Right? I mean, that's what we would say. Like, how was service? Oh, it was great. We didn't even get to the sermon. Right, because during the song, this was this is the way it would happen. During the song service, you could tell some there was a shift in the energy in the room. People started either to praise exuberantly or or to weep in in a sense of conviction. And at that point, you knew 
Pastor so-and-so, he's not going to get to get his sermon out tonight, right? We're, we're going to end in prayer, right? And the whole point of coming to church was for each of us and all of us to be touched by God. And what I want to say is don't choose between those things. Don't be a church filled with people who only come so they can get what they want from God. I mean, there's something that by itself, if that's all you ever do, there's something deeply selfish about that. Like if the only reason you come to church is so you can get something, something's not quite right about that. I mean, when that's the whole. If that's a part, that makes sense. There's some, it's healthy to come expecting God to touch you, to, for God to feed you. But if that's the only reason you're showing up, something's not quite right. Something is, is twisted. And, and so we want to be a church who not only gathers together because who knows what God might do. God might speak. God might act but also because we know we have to get a message said. We have to proclaim the gospel. And if, if we come on a Sunday morning and the gospel gets proclaimed and no one falls out under the power and no one gets healed, we've still done the work of the Lord. Because, because that's what has to get done. We're, we're not just here so that people can have an experience of God. We are here so they can have an experience of God. We're not just here for that. You hear the difference that I'm making? Do we come for that? Absolutely. We come to be transformed. We come to be shaped into disciples. But that's not the only purpose. And one of the things that's happened to, to our churches is we've kind of splintered into practicing to, to different focuses. So you have some churches, they use their Sunday morning service to try to get people to convert that all of their Sunday morning service is designed for the unbeliever to become a Christian. So they end up doing away with anything in the church service that's not comfortable for someone who's not a believer. So in a lot of these churches, there would never be a Lord's table. There would never be a time where you allow people to speak out in tongues. Right? Because your primary focus is, what about those people who aren't believers that we want to become believers? And then there are other churches the only thing they're thinking about are the believers who need to be touched by God. So they don't, they're not thinking at all about somebody who might not believe. They're thinking only about who are those people that are hungry for God, who want to lay on their face in the altar until God touches them. And so everything about their service is geared to that. Every song they sing, every sermon they preach, everything about the design of the service is aimed at touching that need. And what I'm suggesting is you can't think in either ors. You can't think as if we're going to be this kind of church or that kind of church. To be the people of God is to always be thinking about everyone. We don't want to target audience. We don't want to say, well, we're trying to reach this kind of person in Beacon. That's not, that's not to be the people of God. We're not a business. We don't have a business plan. I'm about to get on a, a soapbox right here. Like, we, we, don't, we don't lay out a kind of a target audience and say, now, we're, gonna, we're only going to reach people who wear skinny jeans. <laughs> or we're only going to reach people who live in this part of town. Or we're only going to reach people who make this much money. I mean, anathema to that thinking. Right? That, that is not the way the people of God think. It's whosoever will. If God joins them to us, we got to learn to live with them. And part of the way he forms us is by forcing us to live together with people we don't like. 
right? I mean, what do you think God's doing right now with me and you, right? Like, this is, this is about God sanctifying you, right? Like, this, this is about the ways in which God pushes us. Iron sharpens iron, and that's conflict. So one of the ways God makes the church is by gathering the people together who don't belong together, right? A healthy church is a church of people who are together because they love Jesus and love one another, not because they have shared interests in style of music or style of preaching or location in town or reputation in the community. I mean, we're gathered together not because we like the same music. We're gathered together because we have the same Lord and we love each other, right? And, and we have to belong to one another in that way, right? So all of that is framing, and I'm almost done, all of that is framing for we also hold, have to hold together the liturgical and sacramental life and the charismatic life. And here's something that very few churches in our part of the world have held together very well at all. So you've got what we'll call the cold, dead churches that are really good at the liturgical and the sacramental. But if someone got up and said, thus saith the Lord, like the place would break in half, right? Like the, 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 they would call the police, right? It, there's, who knows, right, what kind of response you might get. And there are exceptions to this. I mean, I know wonderful high church churches that will have, call, have services for the sick where they will anoint the sick and pray for them. So there are exceptions to this. But in far too many cases, you have churches that do the liturgical. They come to the Lord's table every week. They have their liturgy in order, and they perform it well. But they're not open to the spontaneous, charismatic work of the Spirit. They're not open to a word of prophecy or a time where we just interrupt the service and say, you know what, we're not doing anything for the next few minutes because we're just going to wait on the Lord, right? And then there are churches of the other kind that they're, they're wide open. I mean, the wilder it is, the more they like it, right? Like, if it's not really, really weird, it's probably not God, right? Like, I've been in those churches too, right? And those people are scared to death of something liturgical. I, I know of a church where there was a family. Listen, in this church that I, I know really well, there was a church, they did weekly communion. A new pastor comes in, he keeps doing weekly communion, but he adds saying the Lord's Prayer to the practice of taking communion. So they would say the Lord's Prayer right before they would take communion every week. That was a new move. And there was a family in the church that had been there for a long time. They were long-standing members, Sunday school teacher in the church that came to the new pastor and said, we can't stay because what you're doing now is too Catholic. They're saying the Lord's Prayer. It's Jesus' prayer. Now, how in the world can that be too Catholic? It's the words of Jesus, for goodness sake. I mean, do you realize that I know someone personally who left the church because they were doing too much of the words of Jesus? Think, let that settle on you, right? They left the church because they were saying the Lord's Prayer. Now, how did we get to a place where people come and they want to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit? They want to be open to the spontaneous, the miraculous, the prophetic. But if you do anything that feels in any way liturgical, even if it's directly the words of Jesus, they're done. That's what the enemy has done to us. 
Because what you see in Scripture is is these things being held together. So what you see, for instance, and even not, not always well, so 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to a church that's getting pretty much everything wrong. I mean, it's a, it's a dumpster fire of a church, right? But you know what they're doing every week? They're gathering together, and they're singing, and prophesying, and preaching, and doing communion every week. The same, the same church. And they're, they're, they're getting it all wrong. But they're doing all of it. Right? They're coming together every week to have the Lord's Supper. They're doing it the wrong way, but they're doing it. And then they're also, everybody's got a song and everybody's got a word of prophecy. And it's just pandemonium. Right? So they're as charismatic as you can be and as liturgical as you can be, getting it all wrong. But what Paul does is not say, well, pick one or the other. But yes, you should be doing all of that. But let's try to do it a little more faithfully. Let's let's try to reorder the way we practice prophecy, the way we practice speaking in tongues, so that it's faithful. And let's think differently about the way we're going to come to the table. But he insists on doing both. That you don't pick one or the other. So what I want you to do is think of it like this. Throughout Scripture, and then on into the Christian tradition, you have these two images that are held together, the image of the table and the image of the altar. So like in, in, the, in the tabernacle, you had a table on which the, holy, the bread of the presence was kept, and you had multiple altars. So you had an, a brazen altar outside in the court, and then you have an altar of, pra- of a golden altar for praise and incense that's offered up before you go into the Holy of Holies. And so you've got one table that is kind of squared between these two altars. And that kind of the pattern of altar and table continues all the way through Scripture, where you'll see appeals to the altar of the Lord or the table of the Lord. And what will happen is in, in the New Testament and then out into the early church is that the church will come to refer to the Lord's Supper as both an altar and a table. Because, of course, Christians aren't offering sacrifices anymore. But when they come to the table the Lord's table, the table where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper, they also understand this is the altar because this is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. So the altar and the table are one. And this continues all the way through the church's history, where if you read liturgies that come from different Christian traditions, you will see that they're using the word table sometimes and the word altar sometimes. So they'll, they'll sometimes say, you know, let's all come to the altar. And what they mean is, let's come to the communion table. But what happens during revivalism in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s, is those two things separate. And the altar became not the Lord's table, but this space around the Lord's table where you prepared your heart to encounter God. So if you came from kind of a low church, evangelical, or charismatic tradition, when you think about the altar, you're not thinking about the table at all. You're thinking about this space at the front where we kneel or stand or lie down or dance or whatever it is that we do as we are crying out to God. And what happened over time is that essentially the altar became the place of the charismatic where the Holy Spirit would move in dramatic ways, while the table became the place of the sacramental where Christ would be present 
And things that should never have been separated get separated. So you have churches that are all about the altar, but they're not about the table anymore. Or you have churches that are all about the table, but they've forgotten about the altar. And what we need to do is recover them and recognize that we need the altar and the table. We need the table to center the altar so that we never come into the altar without remembering who it is that we're coming to see. The reason you keep the table at the center is if you just keep coming to the altar and calling out on God and calling out on God and calling out on God, two things are going to happen. One is, if you don't have the experience you want, you're going to start to wonder whether or not God is there for you. And coming to the table is about remembering, this is what God has done. God has died and God has been raised from the dead. What matters is not what God is, what God is doing with me. What matters is what God did with Jesus. We don't, the gospel is not God is at work in Chris's life. The gospel is God has raised Jesus from the dead. And the table proclaims that message, that what gathers us is not our shared experience of God. What gathers us is our shared faith in Jesus and his experience of God. So the reason you want the table, one reason you want the table, is because you never want to come to the altar and think that it's all about what you're experiencing or not experiencing. Because whether you hear from God or not, God has spoken. Whether your situation changes or not, God has acted. This has happened. Jesus was born and lived and died and was raised again. That has happened. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's what we're proclaiming. The other reason you want to keep the table at the center of the altar is that over time, it's easy to forget which God it is you're calling out to. Now, this won't happen in a month or a year or even a decade, but if you think generationally, if you think your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids, if all you teach them how to do is to cry out to God and never teach them which God it is they're crying out to, at some point they're going to forget the story that our God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And one of the things that's hurt a lot of our churches is that we don't realize that people no longer know which God it is we're calling out to. The doctrine of the Trinity seems so far removed from what we're actually living day to day. That's too obtuse, too strange. That's for the professionals. But that's the heart of our, that, that's who our God is. Our God is the one who is Father, Son, and Spirit. How did we get to the place that talking about God as Trinity is strange or far off? Or talking about Jesus as the one who's fully divine and fully human at the same time? We could go on. But the point is, the table keeps telling you which God it is you're calling out on. But you don't want to have a table that has no altar. Because the altar is the space in which you are opened up to the encounter with the God you meet at the table. So, in a very real way, the altar is about you letting God act on you. Letting God do what God needs to do so that you can come and receive what God has for you. And what, what would happen if you keep coming to the table without tarrying in the altar is eventually you, you start to receive this but without faith. Right? You're just going through the motions. right? You're, you're receiving it, but you don't remember that this God that you're engaging is a living God. 
that this God is not just someone who in the past was raised from the dead. He is present here. And that's wonderful and dangerous. He's a living God, right? And so some of what happens in the altar is that we remember that God is God. And he, he can't be tamed. He can't be controlled. And, and we have to be open to that. And so we, we want to constantly keep this rhythm of come into the altar, be prepared to come to the table and encounter this God who's claimed us so that we can carry on his life back out in the world. So I'm almost done. I'll, I'll end with this. So think of it like this. The altar is the center. I mean, the table is the center of the altar. It's what keeps us oriented. But the altar is the boundary of the table. The altar is that space in which you recognize now we're coming into something holy. Now we're coming into something sacred. And I have to prepare myself. And the goal is for the altar to continually spread, to get wider and wider and wider and wider. So that you don't think it's only holy when you come up to the front of the room here. But when you show up on this property, you're moving toward that moment of encounter with God. And you need to prepare yourself. And then it'll spread all the way back to your house where you realize when you wake up in the morning, you're already moving toward the presence of God. And, and not just your house, but when you go to work or you go to eat, when you go to the airport to pick up family, when you run to the grocery, you start to realize that part of what it means to be the people of God is to keep pushing the boundaries of the altar further and further and further out. Because who knows? This is a living God, and he's present everywhere. The altar might happen at any time. But the way we remember who it is that's encountering us at that moment of the altar is this table. And we come to this table, we receive what he has for us, and then we push the boundaries of the altar wider and wider in the world. Because all of this is about gift. Both the, the altar is about the gift that God is giving to us as we give gifts to God. And the table is about the gifts we're giving to God, thanksgiving that we're giving to God as he gives gifts to us. There's a, there's a story. Get ready, Pastor Bill. Jump up here and push me out of the way. Um, several years ago when we had moved from Oklahoma to Tennessee, my kids had received gifts in the mail from the grandparents, from Julie's parents, my wife's parents. And then they came to visit. And my oldest had a gift for them when they showed up. And my, at the time, my youngest, now my middle child, he recognized what his sister was doing and realized he didn't have a gift. So he ran up to his room and got the book that his grandparents had sent him and brought it back. So you, you get the story, right? They had mailed him a book. He realizes his sister has a gift for them. He doesn't have a gift, so he goes and gets the gift they had given him and he brings it back in. And he says, here, I have a gift for you. And he's just giving back to them the gift they gave him. And right in that moment, gosh, right in that moment, my mother-in-law got down on her knees right beside him. And she said, oh, Clive, I got this gift for you. I'm so glad you're giving it to me, but here's, here's what's best. You keep it, and then we'll read it every time I come. And what I recognize in that moment is that that's what it means to live with gift. At that point, you can no longer tell who's giving what to whom anymore. 
That's what's happening in the altar and the table. Am I giving myself to God? Yes, but I'm only able to do that because God's giving himself to me. Am I offering something to God? Absolutely. But I'm only able to offer to God what he's already offered to me. And what we're after is to be so absorbed in the life of God that everything is gift. Everything is gift. And everything I'm trying to offer God, I realize I'm just offering God what he's already offered me. But I can offer it to God because he's offered it to me. I'm done. Thank you. Love you all. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.